foreplay is important. Oh, hey. Even for recording applications. Damn, I didn't know we were going there that quickly. <laughs> so what you got going on this week? What, what I got going on? So, all right, first of all, this is crime culture. I know you probably know this already, but it's crime culture. Yeah, crime culture. That's Caitlin. I'm Haley. And yeah. we're stuck inside for that's another we week. Yep, that's what we have going on this week. Nothing new. Oh, lordy. Um, but yeah, I don't really know what to call this one, but we'll probably figure out before we post the episode, I'm assuming. Hopefully. You'll Hopefully. see in whatever we decide to call it, it's going to be in the title. Yeah, whatever the title says is what this episode is. Whatever we decided. But yeah. as of as of 5.18 p.m. Pacific time... On Sunday, we have no idea. Nope. <laughs> um, so we can jump into it. Do it. If you want to. Okay. So, Lana Turner was born Julia Jean Mildred Frances Turner, or as her parents called her, Judy, a.k.a. none of the names that she was born with. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> wow. We're starting <laughs> off with just a weird one. Yep. On February 8th, 1921, to John and Mildred Turner in Burke, Idaho. It's my which sister's is a birthday. Suburb. Oh, no way. Happy birthday, Jean. But way Hi, too Jean, early. Happy birthday. Happy early birthday, Jean. But, um, so Burke is a suburb of Wallace, Idaho, which is known for its silver mines. Oh, okay. And it's. It, or it's a mining town. I don't know if it's just silver or if there's other things. And I know with my luck, somebody from Wallace is going to text me or email me. I hope they don't text me because that means That's they creepy. somehow got my number and it's just out in the open. I know. And be like, excuse me, actually, it's not just silver. It's coal and gold and diamonds and bunnies and whatever the fuck else. Canaries. Spoiler alert. My next episode also has a connection to a mine. So... Ooh, yeah. look at us. Look at us mining for content. Ooh. Take that little informational nugget as you will. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so Lana's father, Judy's father, whatever you want to call her. At this point, she's just Judy. Judge Judy. Um, John worked in the silver mines and he had some problems specifically with alcohol and gambling. So... As a result, the family had some pretty substantial money problems right off the bat. Yeah, if you're going with your uh, damaged child uh, bingo card, um, a drunk father and money problems. So yes. check off those in your free space and you're pretty close. You're already practically there. Yeah. So then to make ends meet, he took to bootlegging corn liquor because, again, 1920s. Uh-huh. And was doing okay making some money until the police figured out that that's what he was doing and got a little suspicious and so the family fled to san francisco when judy slash lana slash julia turned six um her family i couldn't find much information some sources said that her parents separated afterwards however the rest of this doesn't make sense okay if they separated so they might have separated either way it was not a happy marriage yeah it was not a happy marriage um so then about three years after they moved to san francisco in december 1930 um J john turner 
was working at the docks of San Francisco and hadn't given up gambling, hadn't given up drinking, but was making a pretty honest living. And after winning a basement poker game one night, was bludgeoned to death. Ooh. And he was known to have kept his winnings in his left sock. And when they found his body in an alley the next morning, it had been that one sock had been stripped from his foot. Everything else was intact. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And they never found out who did it. Yeah. So put down dead daddy for your bingo card. Yep. Yep. Uh, (laughs) We got like one or two more left and then we're good. Yep. And then we'll get bingo. You, You call it out and let us know when you've got bingo. Um, so then Mildred, uh, Lana's mother, I'm just going to call her Lana because that's what people know her as. Um, she had such a hard time making ends meet after the death of her husband that she actually had to put Lana in foster care for a period of time during which she was physically and emotionally abused and verbally abused. Just the whole gamut. I mean, that's hard on like both sides of like making the decision to actually like find a place for your child. And also being that child and having to go, like, you're ripped away from your parent. Like, one parent died, you're ripped away from the other. And then you have to go into, like, a place you've never been to and get abused. Like, that's pretty fucked up. Yeah. Well, and then, and even beyond that, like, you you think to yourself, my child will have a better life. I can give my child a better life if I can put them into adopt, into the care of foster parents. And that's not even the case. Yeah, exactly. Like, she like it's just it's very sad like you put them in foster care because you think you can't provide and then all of a sudden the foster care system is maybe worse than what you could have provided yeah um so i should say she wasn't in foster care permanently it was just during a hard time financially for lana and her mother yeah um mildred turner also suffered from bronchitis and when a doctor suggested that moving to a dry drier climate might alleviate her symptoms she decided to move herself and judy who is now 16 and is apparently not being called lana like i said i was going to do to los angeles and there judy lana enrolled in hollywood high school where her looks and her carefree attitude that she got from her dad would launch her into stardom but at the time in high school it just made her very popular yeah and it's funny to think that uh the cure for bronchitis would be moving to los angeles uh today i don't think that is the cure maybe but um, i can almost guarantee it i mean i was like at first i was like "Ooh, los angeles that air is not great and then i was like oh wait this is the 20s they only have like this is like the 40s the 30s they still only have like little putt-putt cars yeah 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 and not everybody can even afford one yeah yeah like for example they had to they could not afford a car they had to hitchhike with a friend oh jesus um like as in like the friend gave them the ride yeah the friend happened to be going that way yeah um but so the story goes that billy wilkerson who was the publisher of the hollywood reporter discovered judy at Schwab's drugstore on Sunset Boulevard, where she was having a soda at its infamous lunch counter, which is where they said all the stars were discovered having a soda at the lunch counter. Obviously, it's that easy. Ob- yeah, obviously, not everybody was at that fucking lunch counter, and the same would go for Judy Lana, uh-huh. who 
actually had skipped school that day to sneak a cigarette across the street from her high school at so there's different there's different places so one source said that it was the top hat cafe and another said that it was an ice cream parlor okay so i don't know uh but wilkerson was there and sitting across from her at that diner counter that's like u-shaped you know what i mean yeah and he immediately asked the counterman who she was and if she would talk to him so the counterman was like the intermediary between the two of them and at first she was like yes the wingman quite literally um and at first lana judy refused because she her mother taught her not to talk to strangers and even though she was kind of a bad girl because she skipped school and was smoking cigarettes, she also was like, I don't want to get raped. So yeah, that's a good rule of thumb to follow by. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's fair. Um, so at f- so she was like, no, no, no. Until the counterman vouched for Wilkerson and was like, hey, he's not a creepy dude. He's he's like a normal guy. He's a good guy. And he's a very powerful guy. Um, so she agreed to speak with him for a little bit. At which Wilkerson said the ultimate line that has been used many times since, but probably not nearly as effectively. How would you like to be in the movies? Oh, oh lordy. <laughs> um, and apparently, allegedly, she actually replied that she had to ask her mom. <laughs> Good. Always say you have to ask your mom first. Yeah, she was 16. But I think that's so great. And so wilkerson was just like not going to be deterred deterred so he was like okay ask your mom here's my business card give me a call if she says yes so then she kind of kept the card and hung on to it for a few days because she was like fuck now i have to tell my mom that i talked to a stranger that's <laughs> and what true. happens yeah, if yeah. she finds the card she's gonna find out i talked to a stranger and i didn't tell her so finally she gets up the courage to tell her mom hey look i talked to a stranger but he wants me to be, be in the movies. I'm going to be a star, see? Um, so when she did, they kind of did some recon on Billy Wilkerson and found out that he was one of the most powerful men in Hollywood at the time. Well, damn. Um, What's he doing yes, at fucking ca- soda counters picking up 16-year-olds? Yes. <laughs> well, and that's the thing, too. And the counterman undersold him. He's like, yeah, he's a pretty, he's a nice guy. And he's, he's got some connections. He's got every connection, as we'll get into he in a He is the connection. He is the connection. Mil- Mildred obviously calls him immediately and is like, so I heard you want to put my daughter in the movies. I think we can work something out. So Wilkerson got Lana, Judy, Julia, I take your pick, signed at the talent agency of one of the, although very famous, less famous Marx Brothers, Zeppo Marx, who introduced her to casting director Solly Biano. And Biano almost immediately brought her to Warner Brothers director Mervyn Leroy, who needed an actress like her for a movie he was working on. And basically, as the story goes, she like her. She didn't understand. She was a teenager and she didn't understand how like Hollywood worked yet. And she hadn't been like given the whole like Hollywood glamour makeover thing yet. Uh-huh. So she showed up in like a plain cotton dress and her hair was not like quaffed or anything like that like she just showed up as as fucking judy turner as a 16 year old would yeah yes yes and he fucking loved it he ate that shit up and was like it's a breath of fresh air i wish that like me walking into a casting agency 
in like a t-shirt and jeans on, would like, make third them go day oh. hair. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it would make them go, "Oh, wow, what a breath of fresh air. Let's give her a movie because let's be honest, that's not how it works anymore." No. Um they're like you they're dirty like, oh, person. She's had no- yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, she's never had any work done. Throw her out. Um so he thought that she was perfect for this role and it was a sweet virginal college student who gets murdered perfect in his 1937 film they won't forget and he also like kind of befriended her and was just like i'm gonna help you but not in like a creepy way that i know of Mm. maybe it was and it's always creepy usually creepy we don't know it's 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 less creepy depending on where his loyalties lie okay um but he also helped her come up with her new name because he was like, we can't have Judy Turner or Julia Turner on the marquee. Why? So, I don't it's know. Too it was the, I guess. I guess. It didn't sound as quaffed as they were planning to make her. That's, be- that's fucking bullshit. Yes, but for my sake, thank God he did it. So now I don't call her three fucking names. And he helped her come up with the name Lana Turner, which is what, that's, that's it. That's what we're going to call her for the rest of this fucking thing. Okay. So, not long after, MGM stole Leroy from Warner Brothers, and so he was like, fine, I'm going to take Lana with me. And he did, and he got her them to double her salary from $50 to $100 a week, which is about 500 something dollars a week in today's... Really? Like, it, it, was, about, it was about $13 and change per hour if wow. it was an eight-hour day, five days a week. Uh-huh. So yeah, so like decent money for a seventeen-year-old, sixteen-year-old. Amazing to be making. money. I was making yes. fucking six fifty an hour for like the summer, not like all year. Right. right. And and he also bought Lana and Mildred a house. Oh shit. Yeah, like see, like he's like a nice. He's not one of those like creepy dudes yet. Yet, but spoiler alert, not. Um, okay. There's actually possibly a connection that I'll get to in a minute. Not in a minute. It won't be in a minute. It'll be at the end of this. I don't know why I said a minute. It's going to be much longer than a minute. Um, But we'll get to that. But so her parts still remained mostly minor. um, And she also attended MGM's Little Red Schoolhouse, which is kind of famous. If you've ever seen um, the new Ryan Murphy series, which the name escapes me right now, I want to say it's called Hollywood. You know what I'm talking about? I know he has The Politician on Netflix. He does. This is also on Netflix. It's, um, oh, for fuck's sake. Um, I don't follow the, the whole Ryan Murphy line of entertainment. I, I, it is called Hollywood. I'm just fucking stupid. I like it because it's got Darren Chris in it. And I've been following Darren Chris's career since I was in high school because I'm sad. Doesn't he have Darren Chris in all of his shit? Now he does, but he didn't before. Yeah. Um, but so that the little red schoolhouse is kind of featured in Hollywood. Like they, they make it as a, as a schoolhouse kind of for adults where they learn how to speak with a mid Atlantic accent and shit like that. Okay. And this was a little bit of that, but it was mostly like, this is how we're going to make sure that our, that we don't get arrested for not teaching these minors that we're putting in movies. Okay, great. (laughs) Um, so she actually went to this school along with other child contract players, including Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland. 
1939, she was cast as the lead in the movie The Dancing Co-Ed, where she, pl- where she met a big band leader and a notorious player named Archie Shaw. Artie Shaw, excuse me. And so she was like 18-ish at the time, and he asked her to lunch, and she agreed, but she wasn't really into him. She wasn't really impressed by him. Uh-huh. Um, she actually said she thought he was, quote, one of the most egotistical people I've ever met, end quote. Burn! <laughs> I know. Um, but at the same time, she had also started dating a lawyer who also happened to be a big player named Greg Boutzer, and he ended up breaking up with her to get with Joan Crawford, who was much older than her at the time, so she was like, not only are you breaking up with me for another woman, but you're breaking up with me for a fucking boomer. And she just was not pleased. It's usually the other way around. I know. Surprising. I know. Um, But so because she was still mad at him, she agreed to go on another date with Shaw. And they ended up eloping that night in Vegas. Uh, I feel like we missed a (laughs) chunk in the middle. (laughs) The most egotistical person I've ever met. Boom. Married. Yeah, that's how it works, isn't it? Isn't that how you and Elliot got together? I, I mean, that's a whole other story for a different true crime podcast, but damn. Yeah. Shit's but moving surprisingly, yep, and the divorce came quick, too. It did not go well. A nice 55-hour um, Britney marriage or no, a 72-hour uh, Kardashian marriage? Yeah. It was probably closer to a 72-day Kardashian marriage. Um, yeah. Basically, Shaw demanded that she basically take over sole responsibility for the housework and she was like i can't do this while also maintaining my job i gotta work bitch yeah i ain't your housemaid right and so he responded to that by abusing her so they got a divorce that september and she later admitted that she had actually gotten pregnant during their marriage but because it was ending and everything she had an illegal abortion because like i said it wasn't legal back then but basically studios do and we'll touch on this a little bit too do did not want their actresses to be these unwed mothers and it would be a bad look for them for the studio for the pictures they were in so they would pay for them to get an abortion or like there was one girl i can't remember her name she was a well-known actress she actually there was a whole thing her studio formulated basically this is a trigger Clark, warning by the way i'm we should have put a little uh trigger yes. warning before this shit shit i'm sorry trigger warning i'm so sorry um skip, ahead. skip ahead if yeah um clark gable raped her on set and she got pregnant and she was like i'm catholic i cannot get an abortion and clark gable basically pretended she never existed ever again um unless like they were at a party in which case he would be all friendly with her and she would be like get the fuck away from you you're disgusting Uh. um yeah but so what the studio did in response was they basically sent her away while she was showing she gave birth to the baby and then like i don't remember if it was months after or years after she just out of the goodness of her heart decides to adopt a baby all on her own ah okay and it's yes and it was her daughter huh okay yeah um but so this is not uncommon this is not at all uncommon that's horrifying yeah 
Yeah. But so then the following year, in 1941, she got her breakout role in Zigfield Girl, which completely changed her career. No more minor roles for Lana. And a year later, after meeting co-star Robert Taylor in the 1942 thriller Johnny Eager, they began having an affair, which is believed to have led to his, at the time, wife, Barbara Stanwyck, trying to, trigger warning, commit suicide. Um, and she, either way, whether that's the case, whether that's the reason for it or not, Stanwyck, like, never spoke to Lana again. Oh, geez. Like, com- actively avoided her at award shows, like, would not give her the time of day. So in an effort to, like... She, she basically was like, okay, I need to settle down. I need to, like, cool it with all this shit. So naturally, she got married. <laughs> Great. And this time she married restaurateur Stephen Crane. And it was that same year in 1942. So about two years after she was married the first time. And the same year she became pregnant and... They actually had to remarry a year later because of a couple little bigamy issues. Ooh. Yeah. Basically, so his divorce from his previous wife had an interlocutory decree, which meant that he had to wait a year, or it was going to be a year before the divorce was final, no matter whether they signed the papers it would be one year from then for yeah. the divorce to go into full effect. Weird. Okay. Effect, excuse me. Yeah. Very weird. Um, but it meant that he also had to wait at least a year to get married again, or else it would be legally considered bigamy. Oh. And yes. And so it sounds to me like Lana was not aware of this when they got married because she was none too pleased. And when she found out they separated Oh, because his wife, his ex-wife, like, also came in like guns ablazing and was just like, I gotcha and was very not happy with him, but was also like, hey, you should listen to about this guy. Yeah. So, um, like, it just not a good deal. And so they separated, but they had to get remarried a year later in 1943 because MGM. So she got pregnant while they were married for a brief time uh-huh. and mgm was like you can't get a divorce because of the financial repercussions that we will face and that you will face being an unwed mother yeah it's that thing again so rather than get another abortion she chose to remarry Stephen, and they gave birth to their child cheryl she did not he she did but um they basically remarried to try to give her a stable home which will be ironic please remember this later and then they got an official official divorce in august 1944 when cheryl was about a year and a half okay so obviously turner's got some daddy issues to put it mildly yeah and as her daughter cheryl grew up lana continued to be a superstar while also striking up relationships with various co-stars and superstars, including Tyrone Power, Frank Sinatra, and Steel Tycoon heir Bob Topping Jr., all three of whom were married. Mm. Yep. And the last one, 
topping, although Lana admitted that she felt nothing for him, basically one night at a club, he dropped a diamond ring into her martini and that was his way of proposing. And she said, yes. Yeah. My number one requirement was don't put it in food. No food, no drink. what if you eat it? I don't like it. It's sticky and gross. Oh, I'm more concerned about what if you eat it. But yeah, that oh, yeah, too. Oh yeah, 100%. But no qualms for Lana. And basically she married him as soon as he got a divorce from his current wife. She was making sure this time. Yes, she made sure that they were fully divorced at the time. But he left his wife for her. Like he was like, will you marry me? I'm going to ask my wife for a divorce. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, not healthy. And at this point, Cheryl was about five years old. So, Topping, it turned out, like I said, Lana had some daddy issues, and Topping was basically a, a characterized spitting image of her father. And he had some money issues, he had some gambling issues. Um, at this time, in addition to dealing with her tumultuous marriage she also suffered from two miscarriages due to a genetic disorder that she ended up realizing she had finding out she had that prevented her basically prevented her from having kids Um, like cheryl was a miracle baby and that's just how it is um but so then her career started to fizzle because she would not do period pieces despite the fact that they were so successful for her career one of the most famous period pieces she did was the three musketeers Uh um but basically with all of these underlying factors she attempted to commit suicide um she went into her bathroom and slit her wrists but her business manager benton cole figured out what was going on and broke down the bathroom door and took her to the hospital and cole along with mgm covered up that she attempted to commit suicide and told the press that she had accidentally fallen through her shower door Oh. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. So when she recovered, MGM put her back to work to try to get her mind off of everything. And that was in the 1952 remake of The Merry Widow, where she met and began having an affair with her co-star, Fernando Lamas, despite still being married to Topping. Yeah. Unfortunately, this relationship wasn't very good either arguably worse because Lamas was frequently physically abusive towards Lana and to the point that customers would have to work around her bruises and injuries to cover them up like her makeup artists and her costume people yeah horrifying yeah and another example is that at a party thrown by William Randolph Hearst's wife Marion Davies actor Lex Barker who is best known for playing Tarzan asked Lana to dance and she agreed and Lamas who was there was furious and when Barker brought her back to the table after their dance um allegedly Lamas grumbled why don't you just take her out to the bushes and fuck her okay so I (laughs) am gonna do a PSA right now any guy that's gonna be like that disgustingly jealous it's not cute no i have never once thought that personality type is cute it's not like sexy it's like oh he's here to protect me it's like no he wants to own you and it's horrifying and disgusting 
And any guy that says that, you should slap them across the face and be like, hey, are you an adult? Fucking wise up, right. asshole. Right. Like, ladies, we have come so far from being just like traded for livestock. Let's not take a couple steps back. Like, let's keep moving forward. Dance please. with who you want to dance with. Let him dance with who he wants to dance with. Let's yes. all just be like fucking let's open and honest with each other. Jesus Christ. Yeah. But unfortunately, nobody had this conversation with Lala's. No, it was and a different time. That's the yeah, excuse that always sure. gets thrown boys around, right? Boys. Yeah, sure. That's that's good enough, I guess. Um, but so, yeah. So Lana was understandably very angry and embarrassed and basically was just like, just take me home. Uh-huh. Like, I don't I don't want to this like you're causing a scene take me home yeah it's making it's like embarrassing her too it makes her look like yeah yeah so from there they basically argued until they got home where the verbal argument then ensued uh, that ensued then escalated into a physical altercation and lana ultimately told mgm executives about the her abuse at the hands pun not intended um but her abuse by llamas and they fired him from the picture and replaced him with ricardo montalban aka the grandpa from spy kids oh okay uh-huh much better choice oh antonio banderas was the dad right yes yes antonio banderas is the dad ricardo montalban is the grandpa carla gugino is the mom and i think holland taylor is the grandma you know if I'm too many you know too much about the casting of spy kids i love spy kids it's it's classic who played it's the thumb so people good. was that the second one or no was that, that the was the first one? one floop is a bad man help us save us <laughs> um <laughs> i forgot that until this moment <laughs> anyway listen to caitlin's spy kids podcast (laughs) dropping whenever the fuck she gets around to it who what where when and why the spy kids podcast with caitlin mar um but yeah so he he replaced um llamas and that december lana also finally divorced topping so went on a little too long but she got out of it good However, her career went on to take another hit when MGM's Louis B. Meyer stepped down and the new head of the studio, Dor Shari, Scary, S-C-H-A-R-Y, basically he hated her, he hated her work, and wanted to do anything and everything he could to, like, eliminate her contract. Damn. Yeah. So in the wake of this turnover, and also she had an issue with back taxes she owed to the IRS, um, she got into another impulsive marriage, this time with Barker, the guy that she danced with, in September 1953. And they went over to Europe to avoid the IRS, made a couple movies, then MGM let her go in 1956. All right. That same year, Lana became pregnant with Barker's child, but ended up giving birth, um, I almost said spoiler alert, trigger warning. She gave birth to a stillborn baby girl seven months into her pregnancy, which just <sighs> added to her tough times. Yeah. 
So I'm sure we're all wondering about Lana's daughter, Cheryl. Yeah. Who still exists. Um, and at this point she has dealt with, in addition to her mom's boyfriends, two marriages, not including the one to her father because she was like a year and a half old when that happened. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So, and then countless losses of potential siblings and all of that. So, and I don't want to say with, with the marriages and boyfriends thing, like a woman can marry and get into as many relationships as she wants with whoever she but wants. But these weren't healthy. These, uh, well, and beyond the fact that these weren't healthy, it's just, I'm I, like, you should be in a healthy relationship, obviously, but that's not your fault if you're not usually, unless you're the one that's making it unhealthy. Um, but I'm, what I'm saying is these boyfriends, these marriages, it may have contributed to it, but it is not what made Lana a bad mom to Cheryl. Yeah. Because she was a shitty mom. Um, Cheryl spent much of her early childhood being taken care of by her grandmother, Mildred. And she was just sent to boarding schools from an early age so that Lana could keep up appearances going club hopping and posing for staged paparazzi pictures and rubbing elbows with famous people and dancing with men and making her boyfriends jealous. And because of this, it should come as no surprise that Lana and Cheryl not only didn't have a healthy relationship, they didn't really have much of a relationship at all. Yeah, because she has Um, hardly spent time with her. Right. So, for example, one time while at one of the boarding schools that Cheryl was sent to, um, her teacher had all of the students... Basically, the school had a standard routine of the students writing home to their parents, and Cheryl refused to participate. And the teacher said to her that unless she wrote to her mom, she was getting no dinner that night. So Cheryl wrote to her mother. Oh, God. And she said, dear mother, this is not a letter. This is a meal ticket. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, she like, started the letter. Uh, right to, like, I don't know how her grandmother treated her, but like, write to your grandmother then. Like, yeah, but it, that's not how it was seen back then either. I guess. Like yeah. now it's seen as more normal that like kids' grandparents can raise them as like there's so the many different kinds caregiver. of families that are yeah. accepted now that weren't then. Yeah. So it's different, right. I guess, yeah. But it gets worse. Oh Lord. Of course it does. Alright. So we've got another trigger warning coming up. In nineteen fifty seven, at the age of thirteen, Cheryl confided in her grandmother that her stepfather, Lex Barker, had been periodically raping and molesting her since she was 10 years old which one was he was the newest husband tarzan oh okay Ooh. the dancer yes oh jesus yes um so mildred called lana over to her house and had cheryl repeat the story to her mother and allegedly alana alana i've got a friend named alana so this is going to happen a lot this, I'm just straight up. This is probably going to happen a lot. Anytime um, you say Alana, it's Lana. It's Lana. It's a Lana. single Lana. Yes. Um, just one Lana. Yes. A Lana. <laughs> <laughs> um, so allegedly she went home. Barker was in bed asleep. And so she went over to their nightstand where a gun was kept in the drawer, put it to his temple. And when he woke up, she just said to him, get out. This is Lana? Lana. Okay. Wow. 
Lana was like, bye, bitch. She's standing up for her daughter, finally. Oh, it gets better. So, according to Cheryl's retelling of what her mother said happened, Barker immediately got up. He He was, like, packing his things, trying to get the fuck out of there as fast as he could, because, you know, angry wife with a gun. Yeah. And she knows what you did. Except he started protesting that Cheryl was lying and that he did not rape her. Yeah, but you can have this discussion when there's no gun and when you've gotten out of the house. Just get out of the house for now and then have this discussion later. No, no. Because that's when Lana was basically like, hmm, that's funny because I never mentioned Cheryl. Oh. Or the rape. Flip it on him. She was like, I didn't mention either of those things. So why are you, what, why? Yeah, would why you is have your, that head in your head jump to that? Yeah, why would you go to why would you go there to my child and you raping her? Yeah, it's very so, yeah, specific. So Barker was no more. <laughs> um, she did not kill him, but their divorce was finalized in July 1957. So she divorced him fast because this was like spring 1957 that Cheryl said to her, "Hey, this yeah. is going on." Yeah. Um, and you would think this would be where the story ends and Lana learned her lesson and changed and became a better better mom to Cheryl, but we wouldn't be here if that was the case, now would we? Nope. Nope. So about the same time that Lana found out about her husband's sexual abuse of her daughter and kicked him out, she began shooting the film The Lady Takes a Flyer. And while filming, she began receiving phone calls, flowers, vinyl records, an engraved gold watch, um, a portrait of her that was commissioned from a local artist, like all kinds of fucking gifts from a yeah. gift shop manager named John Steele. Okay. So Lana later claimed that she didn't even know how he got her phone number at the time, but she also didn't really think much of it. And it turned out that he allegedly would collect phone numbers of various Hollywood actresses and on his list included Lana Turner and Shasha Gabor. Creepy. So Lana began dating John, who also took a paternal interest in Cheryl, but not, as far as I could tell, in a bad way. Okay. Um, He bought her a horse, for example, and took her out riding. Um, At one point, he even suggested to Lana that she send Cheryl to live with his family in his home of in his hometown of Woodstock, Illinois, to get her into a more stable, wholesome environment. Interesting idea. Yeah, and like he was he was a great guy. He clearly seemed to care about Lana. He clearly cared about Cheryl and treated her as one of his own kids. And everything was great until it wasn't. And Lana and John went public with their relationship. Uh-huh. And her friends immediately were like, oh, honey, no, what is you doing? Because turns out John Steele was actually a man named Johnny Stompanato, who was a gangster and part-time bodyguard of one of the biggest L.A. mob bosses, Mickey Cohen. Oh. And he changed his name to John Steele and com- made up this whole backstory. Not about the Illinois part. His family was in Illinois. That was true. Yeah. But made this all up because he felt that she would not give him the time of day if she found out he was a gangster. Which There's probably a reason for that. Yes. And she broke up with him briefly, but then he wooed her back. And you'll find there's a lot of this. She seems easily wooed. She is easily wooed. We've got some issues with the papas. And so at first she was super into dating the bad boy. She was super into that whole thing. 
but eventually realized that the relationship was no good after a couple of months and tried to end it. Johnny, however, refused to take no for an answer and would not leave her alone. Um, she later alleged that on one occasion he actually drugged her and took nude photographs of her while she was unconscious to potentially use as blackmail if she ever tried to leave him. All right. Real piece of shit. So she took a job in England filming the 1957, 1970, 1957 movie Peyton Place to try and put some distance between herself and Johnny in hopes that their relationship would fizzle out on its own with the distance. And this didn't last because pretty soon she became lonely in England. So she started writing love letters to Johnny and it got to the point that she and Johnny missed each other so much that they, that he eventually went to England to join her. Like, as you're writing the, how about you write the letter and then you just put it in a drawer for a little bit? I was gonna say, and then just don't send it. Because you don't remember all the shit that went down? Like, you don't remember why you broke up? Yep. Well, and they didn't break up. That was the thing. She was trying to get some distance from him so that they would not even just break up, that they would just part yeah consciously uncouple as my girl gwyneth calls it Uh uh-huh so he goes to england to be with her and then lana remembers again why she wanted to put some distance between them in the first place because he became very possessive very jealous and got to a point that he would go with her to set when she went to film demanding to be present at all times and then he heard a rumor that she was having an affair with her co-star, who was this new up-and-coming actor that nobody really ever heard of since, named Sean Connery. Oh. And Johnny allegedly confronted Sean Connery with a pistol and warned him to stay away from her, which, not super easy when you're the lead yeah. in a movie with your fellow lead. Yeah. Um, but then, in a true James Bond-esque, this is probably what got him the fucking James Bond job, to be quite honest um move connery apparently took the gun away from johnny like snatched it away punched him and then personally kicked him off the set all right nothing but respect for my james bond but yeah so then johnny was sent back to their hotel and when lana returned they're arguing escalated and eventually became physical Uh and to the point that he choked her so badly that production had to be halted for a few days because she couldn't speak oh jesus christ yes so then lana and her makeup artist who was trying to help her get out of this situation called the scotland yard and said that johnny had entered the country and this was true they didn't lie but they said he entered the country with a fake passport falsely identifying himself as john Steele, and therefore scotland yard came and deported him perfect yep however in january 1958 she decided to take a secret vacation in acapulco and here is where things differ I I don't know which is true, to be honest, but some sources stay, say that Lana had reconciled with Johnny and invited him along. Okay. 
but others say that Johnny used his mob connections to get her itinerary and where she was staying and stalked her to Mexico. Both seem plausible. Yes, both sound reasonable. Yeah. Maybe it's a combination of the two. I don't know. Yeah. Um, either way, they reunited in Mexico and things were good for a minute and then they started fighting again. And Johnny turned things up a little bit and was now threatening Lana, Mildred, and Cheryl if Lana ever left him again. Um, one of the things that he frequently would threaten was to break her bones maf- mafia style. Oh, Jesus. Like, basically just, sh- you know what I mean? Like, bust her kneecaps, like, shatter her bones, yeah. like, all that bullshit. Um, to slice her face with a razor blade so she wouldn't be able to work again. Um, like, just all kinds of gross not cool shit classic stuff to make a guy to make you want to stay with a guy yeah yep yep so at one point he also allegedly pulled a gun on her not cute not cute decidedly not cute like if you're gonna whip something out and point it at me please don't let it be a gun um please let it be something else. oh well <laughs> Haley, Haley we little, uh, that one was great we got a little peek into caitlin's <laughs> life not much um (laughs) so um they returned to los angeles for the academy awards um lana was nominated for an award i believe is how it went yes um and when they got back there was a photo taken of them by the paparazzi which only exacerbated matters because the the headline accompanying the photo was lana turner returns with mob figure oh yeah and so then that also the studio now is like hey bad press yeah it doesn't Can't look good have it. doesn't look good for you doesn't look good for us doesn't look good for the kid doesn't look good for anybody but johnny yeah so lana kept seeing him but she also would continue to refuse his marriage proposals which was pissing him off yeah because he was like well then why are you dating me and she's like because you're threatening to kill me yeah right <laughs> i'm not um, here for me dude yeah well she is here for her but well, not yeah in the not way for that he like wants. her yes. i mean she's not there for her pleasure yes. right um so she further enraged him by refusing to let him escort her to the academy awards on march 26 1958 she went with someone else and after the event she got back to her room at the bel-air hotel to find him there just raging over the fact that he was left out. Oh, male pride. I know. And then he brutally beat her. Like, bad. Like, super bad. Yeah. And a week later would come what Lana only referred to as the happening. Oh. I know. I love it. So, so mysterious. It is. So at about 8 p.m. on April 4th, 1958, which happened to be Good Friday, 14-year-old Cheryl was staying with her mother at the North Bedford house during her school's Easter break. And Lana confided in her she'd been fighting with Johnny on and off at the house all day. And she finally confided in Cheryl that she was going to leave him for good. And she told her, quote, this is it. I'm going to get rid of him. You stay in your room, end quote. So Cheryl tried to do her homework. She tried to concentrate on anything but all of the yelling and screaming that was going on in the next room. Yeah. Um, But eventually she went to the door of her mother's bedroom and overheard Johnny, quote, making threats that he was going to cut her face, that he was going to kill my grandmother, 
end quote, she later told Larry King in 2001. Uh-huh. So she ran down to the kitchen, found a carving knife, and ran back upstairs, yelling for her mother to open her bedroom door. And when Lana opened the door, Lana was trying to shove Johnny out. And Cheryl saw Johnny behind her mother with her with his arm raised uh-huh. as if to, like, kind of hit her. And he was still shouting and he was just being menacing. And so Cheryl pushed past her mother and stabbed Johnny in the abdomen. Good. Just once. Yes. And she later recalled the incident in 2012 saying, quote, there's a knife on the counter. I picked it up, ran back up the stairs. Her door suddenly flies open. I see John coming toward me. He's got his hand up. I raised the knife and he walks right into it. And he looked at me and he said, my God, Cheryl, what have you done? End quote. See, I support her because she's gone through so much shit seeing her mom with all these like shitty guys. And then her mom like steps up and like kicks out her her rapist. And maybe it seems like they're having a a better relationship now. Like they're confiding in each other. They're like getting along. And her mom is finally like, okay, well, I'm going to kick this asshole out. And this girl's 14 and she's like you know what fuck this yeah i'm not gonna let my mom get hurt by another fucking asshole well her mom her grandma who for argument's sake basically raised her and herself yeah um lana later testified that she initially believed that cheryl had punched johnny but realized he had been stabbed when he collapsed and she saw blood on his shirt also he he's a mobster like mm-hmm. she's just this like she's a pretty actress and a 14 year old and yeah who was also very pretty she looked a lot like her mother yeah but like not that it matters but this this terrifying mob guy is like threatening you like yes yeah. go in with a weapon sure yeah yeah don't wait things have happened don't wait until he does something to your family first right like right because and that's the thing because if you look at this the pattern it just keeps escalating keeps escalating keeps escalating it was going to end in injury or death yeah he already beat her so like right at that point get rid of this asshole yeah no fuck that bye so per official police accounts cheryl left the room after stabbing johnny put the knife on a, quote, small marble-topped table, end quote, and ran to call her father, Stephen Crane. Okay. Who immediately, like, hung up the phone and drove to the house to help out. Lana was in a state of shock, and so she called her mother, who went and got their family doctor, and they rushed over to the mansion, and the doctor attempted to revive Johnny by injecting him with a shot of adrenaline and using an artificial respirator. But at that point, it was too late. Um, Per the coroner report, the stab wound inflicted by Cheryl had punctured his liver, portal vein, and aorta, which resulted in massive internal hemorrhaging. Damn. Yeah, so he died fast. She got, Um, like, a direct shot, I guess, because... She did. She got a not not a good shot but you know what i mean like yeah just one and done yeah because you hear these stories about these people who are stabbed like 80 times and you're like jesus christ how could they have taken all of that and like right just one stab and he's out yeah and um then the doctor advised that lana call a well-known defense lawyer named jerry geisler and the doctor called 911 
uh-huh. um, to try to get see if the EMTs could revive him. And the police also came. And when they arrived, Johnny was pronounced dead at the scene. And Beverly Hills Police Chief Clinton Anderson questioned Lana personally. And allegedly, her first words to him were, quote, can I take the blame for this horrible thing? End quote. Oh. Because Cheryl confessed immediately. Yeah. But it's self-defense. I know that. You know that. But. Yeah. Do the public know that? I doubt it. So because of Lana being so famous and the fact that her beautiful teenage daughter had committed the murder, the case quickly just blew up in the media. Yeah. The morning after Johnny's murder, if you can even call it that, and days after, newspapers ran crime scene photos of his dead body on the front pages, and Cheryl was locked up in the county's juvenile hall until a coroner's inquest had ruled on the case. Because, as I'll explain in a sec, so on April 7, 1958, a juvenile pre-detention hearing was held under Judge Donald O'Dell, closed to the public, and Lana, Mildred, and Stephen Crane attended. And the same day, Lana attempted to file an application for Cheryl to be released in Mildred's custody, but the application was denied, and Judge O'Dell said that he felt Cheryl would, quote, be better protected by remaining in custody pending the hearing for the murder, end quote. Mm -hmm. And this is because Mickey Cohen, who paid for Johnny's funeral and for his body to be shipped back to Illinois for burial, publicly demanded murder charges against both Lana and Cheryl, condemned them both, was basically like, you're going to get yours. Uh And to embarrass them, remember those love letters that Lana sent back and forth to johnny they were a little risque of course there was no guess what gets leaked guess what gets leaked to the public yeah funny how mickey gets a hand on those and so he put those in the papers um so on april 11 1958 the coroner's request was held inquest was held and again huge thing in the press just blew the fuck up to the point that 120 out of 160 seats in the courtroom were claimed by the media, and ABC and CBS Radio broadcast the inquest live. Jeez. Yes. So, also, Life magazine published a photo of Lana testifying in court alongside stills of her in courtroom scenes of three of her films. Mm-hmm. And her testimony, which was interrupted periodically with her just sobbing and breaking down and at times, like, becoming faint. Yeah. Um recalled the moment that cheryl stabbed johnny saying quote i was walking toward the bedroom door and he was right behind me and i opened it and my daughter came in i swear it was so fast i I truthfully thought she had hit him in the stomach the best i can remember they came together and they parted i still never saw a blade end Mm -hmm. quote she also during this testimony it took about an hour 62 minutes um total she delved into her abusive relationship with Johnny, saying, quote, Mr. Stampinato grabbed my arm, shook me. He said, as he told me before, no matter what I did or how I tried to get away, he would never let me, end quote. Yeah. And at recess, the well, surrounded by the press, she did nearly faint, like she collapsed. So Cheryl was not present during the proceedings, um, partly for her safety. But her testimony was read before the jury with an excerpt being, quote, he kept threatening her and I thought he was going to hurt her. So I went into the room and I stuck him with the knife. He screamed and asked what I was doing. 
I ran out of the room, end quote. Mm -hmm. So after four hours of testimony during this inquest and approximately 25 minutes of deliberation, the jury ruled that Johnny's death was a justifiable homicide and that Cheryl had acted out of justifiable fear for herself and her mother's life. Yeah, it's true. Mm -hmm. And though the verdict of a coroner's inquest was not, nor is it usually the final word on any case, um, because that's basically just, was there foul play? Let's talk about it. Yeah. Um, It convinced the district attorney well enough not to pursue charges against Cheryl. Okay. So she was basically acquitted. Mickey Cohen was furious over the decision uh-huh. and out outwardly just spoke of his outrage just very publicly. And Lana began to fear mob retaliation against her and her family. Understandably. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. really scary to think about. Yeah. So then Johnny's family in Illinois also filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Lana and Stephen Crane, Cheryl's father. Um, for $750,000 in damages, which would equate to about $8.6 million today. Lana settled it in 1963 for $20,000, or what would be $230,000 today. Jeez. Mm Mm-hmm. I I wouldn't have even given them a cent. No, fuck that. But that's just me. Yeah. So then at a follow-up hearing on April 24th, the DA did convene an inquiry to determine whether Lana was a fit mother and whether Cheryl permanently remained a ward of the court. Uh And so Cheryl was ultimately placed in the care of her grandmother, Mildred, and was ordered to regularly visit a psychiatrist along with her parents. Okay. So, yeah. Now, also at this time, so Peyton Place, the movie that where Lana had been choked out by Johnny that she was working on with Sean Connery. Yeah. Um, that had premiered in December of the, like a few months before. So it was still playing. Mm-hmm. And during this whole ordeal, tickets skyrocketed. Yeah. Everyone was going to see this movie because she was in it. So obviously Paramount decided to push for an early release of Lana's upcoming movie another time another place then the verdict came down oh no then mickey cohen got pissed then the stampanato family sued and as a result the film was a box office and critical failure and lana's career tanked oh damn yeah and the press to add insult to injury they were a lot more forgiving of Lana's escapades when she was clubbing and being like a, a carefree yeah. girl. Not so forgiving when it came to her parenting. And to sum up what the press thought of her famous gossip columnist, Hedda Hopper, who was literally like the Rita Skeeter of her day. Yeah. Called Lana, quote, a hedonist without subtlety preoccupied with her design for living, end quote. And said, quote, Cheryl isn't the juvenile delinquent. Lana is, end quote. Oh, shit. Yeah. Mike, drop. Uh, So, yeah. And unfortunately for Cheryl, her difficulties didn't end there. She became, as she later admitted, a, quote, wild kid, end quote. Uh, She was caught speeding. She ended up in a reformatory school. 
Uh, she escaped from there twice with some other girls. Wow. They like they like hopped the fence and then were caught and then they like hopped the fence and hitchhiked and then were like brought back. Um and so after that her mother was really concerned about how her killing Johnny affected her and how she kept ask- acting out. So she sent her to the Institute of Living in Hartford, Connecticut, which was a mental mental institution. Mm-hmm. And uh, Cheryl also attempted suicide twice. And all of this was before she turned 21. Oh, Jesus. So between the age of 14 and 21, seven years, yeah. all of this went down. Get therapy. Mm-hmm. So she began also during this time rebuilding her relationship with her dad and helping manage his restaurant, the Luau, on Rodeo Drive. And she later said, quote, it took the restaurant business to get me out of my shyness to realize I could greet people in the luau and they wouldn't bite me. A restaurant is make-believe too, you know. It's always opening night. Alan Carr says that when he saw that urinals in the luau were shaped like clamshells, he knew he belonged in Hollywood. End quote. Mm. So after studying restaurant and hospitality management at the School of Hotel Administration at Cornell in the 1960s, she did she did some of that for a while and then... The Luau closed in the 1970s, and long story short, Cheryl went on to eventually become a real estate broker. Then in 1992, after a prolific career, Lana was diagnosed with throat cancer after decades of smoking and began began radiation treatments and chemotherapy. Now, I say prolific career. We'll get to that. Don't worry. Just, just, okay. just, okay. So the cancer went into remission until 1994. It returned, and she died on June 29, 1995, in her condo in Century City, California. Cheryl claimed that she was at her mother's side when she died, but Lana's longtime housekeeper, Carmen Cruz, denied the claim and said Cheryl only made it to the condo in time to talk to the media. Nobody really knows for sure because they were the only people there. Uh Uh-huh. Furthermore, in her will, Lana reportedly only left Cheryl and her partner, former model Jocelyn Josh Leroy, $50,000 and her collection of furs, while she left the majority of the rest of her estate to Cruz. And for what it's worth, at the time of her death, Lana's estate was estimated to be worth about $1.7 million. Wow. Yeah, $50,000 and a bunch of fur. I guess it didn't get along in the end. No word for sure, but it does not sound like it. Yeah. But wait, there's more pop culture. So after the scandal, Lana had some trouble getting work. And in 1959, Universal Studios decided to remake the movie Imitation of Life. And Lana was cast as a struggling actress who sacrifices her parental responsibilities in her drive to make it big, compromising her relationship with her rebellious teenage daughter. It sounds like she's perfect for that role. Right? And... Part of the reason for why they cast her. The other reason was because the studio was not doing nearly as well financially as it did today, does today. So they could only afford a budget of $250,000, meaning they could afford Lana now. Yeah. And so rather than take a massively small pay cut, or big pay cut, smaller pay, less pay, um... She opted to receive 50% of the film's earnings instead, figuring that would at least be a little bit more than the pittance she was being offered. Yeah. And she was right. Because it turned out 
that film would be one of the biggest hits of the year and the biggest hit of her career. Wow, okay. Yes, the film made more than $50 million. In then money? Then money. Not even in, yeah, not even in now money. And because she had opted to receive 50% of the film's earnings, that meant she received more than $2 million after paying back all of the other people. Yeah. Uh, so she made bank. And then on top of that, in 1962, there was a novel written by Harold Robbins called Where Love Has Gone. And it is said to be based on the event... It has a 3.6 out of 5 on Goodreads, and it was then turned into a movie of the same name in 1964, starring Susan Hayward as, like, the Lana Turner, Betty Davis as the Mildred Turner, and Joey Heatherton as the Cheryl Crane character. Like, they they did not have the same names, but the story was basically the same. And they swore up and down that it was not the same story, but it was, like, point by point the same story. Yeah. So it has a 6.3 out of 10 on IMDb, an 82% Google score, and no critics consensus or tomato meeting rating on Rotten Tomatoes, but a 29% audience score, which, mm, Mm -hmm. not great. Um, And then in November 2009, British TV personality Sarah Davies premiered a radio drama for BBC4 titled A Night with Johnny Stampinato by playwright Jonathan Holloway, which is based on this case. Uh And there's no getting around that because they use his fucking name. They use his name. But good things came for Cheryl as well. So she obviously benefited from this a little bit. And one of the ways is that with Cliff Jar, she wrote the 1988 memoir Detour, a Hollywood story, in which she wrote about her early life, including her relationship with her mother, her alleged sexual abuse by her stepfather, Lex Barker. Don't know how alleged got in there. Don't know how alleged got in there. It's not alleged. He did it. And the killing of Johnny Stampinato. And in the novel, she also publicly revealed that she came out to her mother, to her parents, at 13 years old, saying, quote, I knew from the age of six. For years, my mother would never mention it to anyone. Her friends knew that she knew, but that was it. With this book, we bit into it. Mother said to Josh and to me, don't you realize what you are letting yourselves in for? Then she understood this was my book, not her book. One day we were on this subject, homosexuality, and she asked me, you mean it wasn't something I did? It wasn't environmental? And when I said no, I saw a huge weight being lifted from her, end quote. Which, not great, but at the same time, the fact that they can talk about these things. Yeah. And Cheryl says that in the book, um, her mother and she were eventually able to repair their relationship, but based on everything we've talked about i'm not so sure that's true but if it isn't i'm not sure i can even blame cheryl yeah um and also lana was very accepting of her daughter's sexuality to the point that she referred to josh as another daughter a second daughter yes and there's like if you look them up online there's photos of the three of them like hanging out in beach chairs together and just like like having like a girl's day and shit like that And granted, it could all be just posed and things like that. But the reason why I said early in this episode is, hold on, wait, wait, wait. So Josh Leroy, her name is, so, um, what's his name? Leroy in the beginning, whose name is now escaping me. 
and I'm going to die. Mervyn Leroy. I almost called him Melvin, and I knew that wasn't it. But <laughs> Mervyn Leroy, his last name is spelled capital L-E, capital R-O-Y, which is not a common spelling. Yeah. Josh's last name is spelled L capital L-E, capital R-O-Y. Oh. And I looked all the fuck over to see if there was a chance Josh was related to Mervyn Leroy. Uh-huh. Could not find anything. However, what are the odds two people in show business with that name about the same age as like it would have made sense if she was a yeah. Leroy child. She became a model. She worked in show business like couldn't find anything saying whether or not because people don't really talk about her much yeah. because Cheryl is the bigger thing i will say they've been together for 28 years they just got married in 2014 um josh was also in real estate like they kind of had their own little real estate team yeah and they have since retired and now live in palm springs together very nice very nice so i'm glad cheryl got her happy ending um but if you want to read the book to hear about how she got to her happy ending and all of that it went on to become a new york times bestseller and has a 3.5 out of 5 on Goodreads. And Cheryl has also gone on to write a bunch of murder mystery fiction novels. Ooh. Right? Interesting. And yes. And she also published her second memoir in 2008 titled Lana, The Memories, The Myths, The Movie, which focused, as it would sound, on her mother. And that has a 4.3 out of 5 on Goodreads. Okay. Yes. And that is my story of insert the title of the episode here. Yeah, I don't know what I'm going to call it. There's a lot of names. Yeah, there's so many names. At first, so first I think I said to you, I was like, it's the murder of Johnny Stampanato. And I'm like, but we can't focus on Johnny Stampanato. We got to focus on all the underlying factors that come into like, is it the Johnny Stampanato episode? Is it the Lana Turner episode? Is it the Cheryl Crane episode? Is it the Mildred Turner episode? I don't know. We don't know. We'll find out. Nobody knows. When you see the episode, it'll have a title, so. It'll be news to all of us. You'll know what I picked. <laughs> Good, because I can't, I literally, I messaged you, I was like, I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. So that's that. That's that. Um, yeah, go to the website, crimeculturepodcast.tillenburg.com. Uh, join the Patreon. We love all of our patrons. They're great we do um follow us on facebook and instagram and twitter and uh i think that's it for this week yeah i'm good i'm i think i think it's a solid way to to end things to stop it yeah i i i am okay with ending the episode here all right so (laughs) uh we'll see you next tuesday then All right. See you next Tuesday, everybody. All right. Bye. Bye.